If you have a Bible with you, and I hope you do, why don't you open up to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, I shared on Sunday that there is a theological truth, I think quite shaking, quite profound. Those of you who were recently in Israel, we talked about this in the location of the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed on the night of his betrayal. But I want to share this with all of you, and I continue to think about this and process it. But as we open your word, Father, one more time, I just pray and come before you. I ask that you'll bless this time of teaching. Lord, give us ears to hear. I pray that you will attune our hearts to what your spirit has to say to each and every one of us here. And in this unusually brief um, treatment of your word, consideration of your word, I pray for revelation. And I pray for the, the depth, the profoundness, Lord, of this weekend and of what took place 2,000 years ago. I just pray that it would hit us fresh and new in this season and even tonight as we study these things. Holy Spirit, we await your voice in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 11, picking up in verse 47, skipping ahead a little bit. Next Wednesday, we're going to come back to the whole chapter. But verse 47 says, Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. John gives us commentary he says in verse 51, now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. You ever say something and have no idea what you're saying? Speak a word or a sentence and have no clue how truly wise perhaps it is or truly profound, you're not even thinking. Caiaphas, the high priest, spoke prophetically about something so big, it was way beyond his limited defensive comprehension. He didn't know what he was saying, and yet what he spoke was prophecy, as John tells us. It's expedient that one man die for the nation and for the children who are scattered abroad. It's better for us. It's better for all of us that, that one man die, Jesus, that we might live. And John adds, not only the nation of Israel here, in fact, he says, but the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, don't think that that's just talking about the diaspora. That is Jewish people scattered outside of Israel. John knows what he's saying. And at the time of John's writing, who were the scattered children? It's the followers of Jesus. 
John chapter one, verse 12, as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. And I told you back when we were in John chapter one, and make, make note of this, you are not a child of God by birth into the human world. You are a child of God by birth into the spirit of God. By being born again, you become a child of God. We're not all children of God. But he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. So the children scattered abroad, and the nation, that's, that was the prophecy of Caiaphas, one man will die for the nation of Israel, and that plan is yet mysteriously, wonderfully being worked out, and will find ultimate culmination in, in the hands of God but also for the children scattered abroad, and we're scattered here tonight, part of the children for whom the one man died. But Caiaphas uses a word here. It's an interesting word, and I had to look at the translation because it sounds somewhat coarse, even simplistic, when he says, it is expedient for you that one man die for the people. Expedient? I'll take care of things, get this over with quickly. Is that what he's saying? The word expedient, for you Greek scholars, is sumferi. And sumferi means better for, or to one's advantage. It's to your advantage. It's to our advantage. It's better for us that we kill him so that the nation survives. Better for us that one dies so that the many might live there's another translation, and I think it fits really well here, when he says that it is expedient for you that one man die. It's for the common good. Sumferi, for the common good. Jesus died for the common good. Even the most common good. Jesus died for us all. It's why we call this Good Friday. Because it was on this day that Jesus died for the common good. The Friday that God who alone is good, died for common, ordinary, coarse humanity. But what exactly happened on the cross? I'd like just for a moment tonight to pause and think about that. What did Jesus really do in that death? What expedience, what advantage, what, what benefit was his death for the common good? How does it impact you and me? Let's go back to that fateful Friday right now. I'm gonna take you through it. I want you to think through the process of the crucifixion, what took place. I'm not gonna get all into the, the brutal descriptions of the nails and the thorns and, and everything. You know about that. But I want you following the words of Jesus just to follow it chronologically through with me, the words of Christ on the cross. And I'm gonna begin in Luke 23, and you can follow along in your Bibles or just listen to the flow of the story. But back in Luke chapter 23, picking up in verse 33, Luke 23, 33, Luke writes, when they came to the place called Golgotha, the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. Jesus was saying, 
Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When it says Jesus was saying, it doesn't mean he said it once. He was saying it. He was repeating it. It's, it's ongoing here. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. Now, I, Jesus would have known his prayer was heard, but he repeats it. He says it over and over. Forgiveness for the common good. In verse 35, and the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if this one is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanging there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, in the other Gospels, one of the other writers tells us that both criminals were hurling insults at him, but, but apparently one of them wised up at some point on the cross, looking over at Jesus. He answered and rebuked the other criminal, verse 40, and said, do you not even fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. This is amazing. Just a, a little note about the thief on the cross. We, we often have talked about the thief on the cross and how a man was saved at the last minute. Listen, this man was saved at the last minute after having a last minute change of heart. That's remarkable. It's not just, oh, he was up there the whole time going, no, I'm not, I'm not down with this Jesus. I want to be with you. You know, I, I did some things wrong, but I've, I've changed my ways. In that split second, his heart changed. He realized what he was seeing with Jesus. And in that split second, Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Wow. A last second change of heart a cry for salvation, and it's answered. That's grace. That is the grace of God. If you're praying for someone in your life and you don't think they're ever gonna come to faith, listen, even if it happens at the last second, they are salvageable. It's this kind of promise that is for the common good. Granted, right here in this moment, verse 43, it's paradise for one man, but this is a precursor to the common good. That is the promise of paradise for everyone who will join Jesus. Revelation chapter two, verse seven, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. How do you overcome? By trusting in him whom he has sent. Go over to John chapter 19. We're gonna jump back and forth between some of the gospels here. John chapter 19. And picking up in verse 23, what we've talked about, the crucifixion underway, Jesus on the cross, verse 23 says, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece, so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill 
the scripture, they divided my outer garments among them, and for, clo- for my clothing they cast lots, Psalm 22, verse 18, that exact verse written a thousand years before it happened right here. Therefore, the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. And that was good. That was good for Mary and it was good for John. But even from the cross, Jesus is recognizing the common value of caring one for another. Good for mother, good for son, good that they be family. The common good is recognized. This is one of the statements Jesus makes on the cross. Granted, very personal. It's for his mother and his friend. But it's so, so odd to me that in this place of severe pain and rejection and turmoil, he has the presence of mind to take care of mom and to take care of his friend John. And I don't know, I I, I can't prove this one way or the other, but it has been suggested that John's mother had died. So you have a motherless son and a sonless, about-to-be-sonless mother, and Jesus puts them together for the common good. Skip over to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. Verse 45 And all this is happening in process as Jesus is on the cross. It's six hours from start to finish, from from the nailing to the last breath. Six hours, these things taking place, one after another in this time frame. In Matthew 27, 45, now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. We're talking noon to three. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And listen, it's for the common good we recognize something here. You may have heard me say this before. This is one of my soapbox issues. What's really happening here as Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Rabbi Yeshua was instructing his disciples to the Psalm of the Cross. What he spoke is a direct quote of Psalm chapter 22, verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ever the rabbi, yes, he is the crucified servant, but ever the rabbi, he is saying, this is what's happening. This is what's going on. I've told you before, a rabbi would sit down, the the disciples would gather around, and the rabbi would quote the first line of the first scroll that he was gonna teach from. And when he did that, they all knew, oh, this is what we're learning today. And if they had a scroll, they could open to that place. If they didn't, they could at least mark in their minds, okay, this is where he's teaching from. And Jesus, when he spoke this from the cross, is teaching them Psalm 22, which we call the Psalm of the Cross, was prophetic a thousand years ago of exactly what you're watching take place right now. Sometimes you can hear so much Bible prophecy you can just kind of get used to it or numb to it. I hope that's not the case with you. 
When you realize what is said in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Jesus quotes it, and you can say, yeah, well, Jesus could have quoted it because he knew it, and he's just trying to make a connection there. Listen, it continues. Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Psalm 22, verse 1 continues. Psalm 22, verse 16, something Jesus would have had no power over to force it to happen. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And David wrote that a thousand years earlier. And now it's happening. Exactly as written, it gives me chills to think about. How did David even know? Except by the power of the Spirit of God inspiring him, write this down. And David wrote it, a thousand years go by, and all kinds of memory is lost and thoughts forgotten, and all of a sudden, Jesus is on the cross, and he says, this is Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And by the way, and here's the thing I really want you to get, I reject the notion that God turned his back on Jesus at the cross. I reject that. Some of you may, may believe that. May th- I used to think that. Because that's pop Christianity. That is pop Christian theology that, oh, well, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So God must have turned his back on Jesus. Listen to me. It's so important to get this. God does not forsake. God does not forsake. He has never forsaken. If he was a God who forsakes, it would not be for the common good. It would be bad news for you and for me because if he could forsake Jesus on the cross, he could forsake Rick in my messed up life. He could forsake you when you just get a little too sinful for him. Do one thing too many. So that's the way humanity thinks. Now you've gone too far. And God says, that's it, I'm forsaking you. But he's not a God who forsakes. Well, Rick, I don't know. Jesus is on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I've already told you he's quoting the psalm and I will will give you this much. In his humanity, Jesus may have felt that way. There are times my kids feel like I'm letting them down and I know I'm not because we're about to have a big surprise. We're not, don't get excited, Naomi. But, But you know what I'm saying? I know something they don't know, but they think, bums me out, dad's let me down. no. No, no, give me a minute. In our humanity, we can cry out. In our humanity, we can feel forsaken. You wives ever feel forsaken by your husband and not realize he was just thinking about something else? Not to mention the fact that most of us husbands are clueless sometimes. We don't mean to forsake. But we feel, we can feel forsaken. I will give you that Jesus may have felt forsaken, but God did not turn his back on Jesus at the cross. And I will prove it to you. All you got to do is read a little further in the psalm and listen to what the Spirit of Jesus actually says. Psalm 22, verse 24, he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried out to him for help, he heard. God heard Jesus from the cross because the Father does not forsake 
and it is for the common good that we realize this. We recognize Hebrews 13, 5, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. If you were here when we studied Hebrews, you know I call that the five negatives that make up one great positive. Hebrews 13, 5 is literally, I will not, cannot leave you. I will never, no, never forsake you. If you get nothing else on this Good Friday, understand that God will not let you down. He will not forsake you. He will not leave you. You may feel that way. You may feel like even the psalmist crying out, how long, O Lord, must I wait? I prayed about this yesterday and I haven't heard a word. I've been waiting months, Lord. I've been waiting years. God will not forsake you. By the way, and that's not because of how good you are. It's because of how good he is. He is a God who doesn't forsake. Regardless of our foolishness, he doesn't forsake. Well, John, go over to John again, John chapter 19. John chapter 19. And picking up in verse 28, it says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. Well, that's weird. To fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. And I'm gonna come back to that in just a second here. Look at verse 30. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished, that famous a single word in the Greek, tetelestai. He cries this word. He says, it is finished. And John says, and he gave up his spirit. But there's one more thing he says. Even after tetelestai, even after it is finished, there's a final phrase in Jesus' final gasp as he gave up his spirit. And we hear it back over in Luke chapter 23, verse 46. I'll just read it to you. Jesus cried out with a loud voice voice saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he died. Matthew chapter 27, verse 51 tells us, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Then coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many, which would have been freaky. After the resurrection of Jesus, all of a sudden, Uncle Ned shows up. He owes me money. And now the centurion, verse 54, and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened. And they said, truly, this was the son of God. It is expedient for you that one man die for the people. And the son of man did come to die for the common good. But we still haven't answered the question. What was it that Jesus did at Calvary? What was expedient? What was better for us? What what was for the common good? What did he accomplish for humanity there on the cross? And I want you to listen closely to me as I say this. Jesus didn't just take our sins on the cross. Now, he did. But if we stop there, it's all about the weight 
of our sins. He didn't just take our sins on the cross. What terrified Jesus in the garden, Luke describes it as he shuddered. Luke even uses, when he describes that garden scene, a word that is used for a horse. When it shudders, I'll tell you what, when a horse shudders, get away from it. (laughs) Because it means it's trembling. And Jesus shuddered like that in the garden because he saw something so heinous, so horrible. And guess what? It wasn't your sin. I think I may even have preached that sermon. He saw my sin in the garden. It sounds nice, it's emotional and everything, but you know what? My sin is not so great that it could cause God to shudder. He knows what I've done. He knows what you've done. He knows the sin of the world. Do you think anybody can shock God? Do you think anyone's sin is just so heavy? He's like, whoa, I don't know if I can handle that. Remember, he doesn't forsake. What was it that Jesus was terrified by in the garden? What, What was it that he took on his shoulders? My friends, it is something far worse than we could possibly comprehend. And to explain it, look again at verse 48 or 28 of John 19. After this, Jesus, knowing all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. I'm thirsty. How does that fulfill the scripture? Well, I'll read it to you. Psalm 69 Verse 21, they also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. And so Jesus says, I'm thirsty. And verse 29 tells us a jar full of sour wine was standing there and they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and they brought it up to his mouth. Sour wine vinegar is what this was. He didn't drink the gall. Uh, Matthew 27, verse 34, tells us that they offered him gall. This is earlier on at his experience as he hung on the cross, that they offered him gall. Gall was a sedative. It dulled the pain. It had the effect of anesthesia. And what it did was they would give gall to the crucified so that they would hang longer. Because it wasn't just about execution. It was about torture. And that Roman crucifixion normally took two to three days before a person died. And part of how they extended that time up on the cross and that moaning and that aching and that horror was they would give the person gall, which would make them kind of go numb for a bit so that they could withstand the pain. They offered Jesus gall and he refused it because Jesus would feel every ounce, every drop of pain on the cross. He didn't deny that that moment of all of the pain coming upon him. So they offered him gall and he wouldn't take it. But toward the end, he finally says, I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty. And so they offered him sour wine. It's wine vinegar. It's it's a cheap wine that was used by the soldiers. It was often uh, given to soldiers in a big tub or big, big pot. They would keep it there. If they were standing guard for a long time over something, they would have the sour wine. It was cheap and easy, and they could they could get sips of it when they needed to. And it was not to dull them, but it was believed, at least at the time, that that sour wine would revive their senses a bit. So it's there for the soldiers, and he says, I'm thirsty, and someone took a sponge and dips it in there and puts it up to the lips of Jesus, and Jesus drank it, I think in part, to cause the parched mouth to give him the ability to say what he had to finally say. 
it's finished. It's finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus drank it. But there was something else that Jesus drank on the cross that answers the question, what was the common good that he accomplished there for humanity? What is it that Jesus actually took from us on the cross? It's too easy, it is too trite, too trivial to say Jesus only took or just took my sin and my shame. Again, he did take your sin, he did take your shame, but he took so much more. More than your sin, more than mine, more than drinking the sour wine on the cross, Jesus drank the full cup of the wrath of God. That's what happened on the cross. It wasn't just the weight of my sin on his shoulders. It was the wrath of God poured out on Jesus because of our sin, but the wrath was what terrified him. The wrath was what overcame him. The wrath was what dragged him down. What no other human being could stomach, Jesus drank to the dregs. Psalm 75, verse seven, God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord and the wine foams. It is well mixed and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. That was the cup that Jesus asked to be put aside when he was in the garden, when he said, Matthew 26, 39, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. It wasn't the cup of your sin and mine. It was the cup of the wrath of God, and Jesus knew that wrath had to be poured out. That's the payment. His blood to appease, to satisfy the wrath of God. That's what caused him to sweat blood in the garden, the cup of the wrath, and that is what Jesus took on that Good Friday. That's what he drank at Calvary. Yes, Jesus died for our sins, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, gave himself for our sins, Galatians 1, 4, made purification for our sins, Hebrews 1, 3, bore our sins in his body, 1 Peter 2, 24, was released, he, he released us from our sins by his blood, Revelation 1, 5, but the just punishment of your sin and mine that was on Jesus, he took, what he took and drank to his death was the wrath of God. That's why this is so serious. That's why what he did is so profound. That's why I tell you, God does not forsake. He found a way. He found a way to satisfy his wrath for sin in this world by taking it on himself. John 3.36 says, he who believes in the son has eternal life. He who does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And people have no idea what's coming. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them and God made it evident to them and all the sin and all the corruption we see in the world today, people know, they know. They're functioning out of rebellion. They know the right and the wrong of it. Romans 2, 5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God's wrath isn't just because he's an angry God. God's wrath is because he's a righteous God. 
and he judges righteously, perfectly. He has to, it's in his nature. Just as God is love, and that is in his nature, so God is righteous, and he must judge righteously. He can't just let it go. Sometimes as a parent, I'm a bad parent, I just let it go, because I just don't have the energy to deal with it that night. God can't just let it go. His righteousness must be satisfied. The wrath has to be appeased. Let no one deceive you with empty words, Paul writes, Ephesians 5, 6, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And again, I say they have no idea what's coming. Hebrews 10, 29, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which Jesus was sanctified, or by which he, this person, was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. The Hebrew pastor says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And it was this wrath that Jesus took on the cross. This wrath that, my friends, it is coming on this world. There is a time of tribulation that the Bible says is coming on this world. And people don't know. They don't get it. They don't realize. They laugh it off. They're deceived with empty words. They consider what Jesus did, eh, no big deal. He took the wrath of God on the cross and this same wrath, the same wrath is coming on the world but it doesn't have to come on you. In fact, this is the good news of the common good. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Remember that? This is before you chose him. This is when you were lost in your sin. Jesus had already died for you, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. First Thessalonians 1.10, we wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians 5.8, but since we are of the day, listen to this, since we are of the day, don't miss this, let us be sober. How can we be sober? He already drank the cup of wrath so that you don't have to. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. And Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished. What was finished? The wrath of God. Paid up in full. Finished, satisfied, drunk to the dregs. That is what Jesus bore on the cross for you and for me. That's what makes it a good Friday. He did that for the common good. Amen? Would you stand up with me? Susan or someone in the back, get, you can go ahead and get the lights and put it back to worship. We're, I'm gonna read you um, one final thing here. And then we're gonna sing a song together. And I, I want you just to, 
either stay where you are if you, if you want to approach the Lord. By the way, these, these pillows up here are if you want to kneel. We got other pillows coming because these we just ripped off of the couches. But we got, so, so you can come and you can kneel before the Lord if you feel led to do that, if you want to just stay in your place. But what we're gonna do is I'll read this to you and then we're gonna sing a song together. And after that song, we'll keep playing and you're invited to come to the table of the Lord to remember the blood, the body of Jesus, which was given for you, for me, to take the wrath for our sin on himself. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. You know why your cup overflows? Because he drank the cup of wrath. So instead of wrath, you get the cup of mercy and grace, and it is overflowing. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Mm -hmm. 